There are three worldviews that are fighting for allegiance in Western culture, and those worldviews are Christianity, scientific naturalism, and postmodernism. In our last session, we spent time analyzing the nature of scientific naturalism and providing a critique of that position as a worldview. In this particular session, what I would like to do is to discuss the nature of postmodernism and its impact on Western culture. So I would like to proceed in three steps. To begin with, I'd like to give some preliminary remarks that will help us have a background for what follows. Secondly, I'd like to describe the nature of postmodernism and its relationship to something called modernity or modernism. And then I'd like to close very briefly with a critique of postmodernism as a worldview. By way of introduction, there are two different ways of defining postmodernism. Postmodernism is capable of both a historical definition and a philosophical definition. Historically, postmodernism is defined as an intellectual movement that comes after and seeks to replace modernism. Now that, of course, raises the question of what exactly is modernism. And modernism would be roughly European Enlightenment thought from the 17th to the 19th centuries. Thinkers such as René Descartes, John Locke, David Hume, Immanuel Kant, George Berkeley, Wilhelm Leibniz, and Baruch Spinoza would all count as modernist thinkers. It is widely thought that modernism, which began in the 17th century in Europe, has continued, continued to hold dominance in Western culture until around the 1950s. If we define postmodernism as a historical movement that is designed to come after and replace modernism, the idea then is that postmodernism begins in the late 50s and the early 1960s, and its intent is to replace modernism as the main paradigm in Western culture. And the important thing to keep in mind is that postmodernism is a movement and not simply an intellectual paradigm. Advocates of postmodernism are set on spreading postmodernism as a worldview throughout the world. It becomes important, therefore, to understand precisely what this worldview is because its advocates are zealous to make sure that postmodernism gains ascendancy in the struggle for worldview. Postmodernism is also capable of being given a worldview or a philosophical definition. When we define postmodernism as a worldview, it turns out to be a form of cultural or community relativism. Very briefly, it says that all truth, all reality, and all value is relative to your culture or your group. What is real and true and right for one group may not be real and true and right for another group. All reality, all truth, and all value is relative not to the individual, but to his linguistic community, to his culture, uh, to his larger uh, homogeneous group. Now, still by way of introduction, there is something called deconstructionism that is a part of postmodernism. Deconstructionism is the postmodernist hermeneutic. Let me explain this. Hermeneutics is the study of how to interpret language. In hermeneutics, you study how to interpret speeches, how to interpret the Bible, how to interpret poetry, how to interpret novels, and so on. Hermeneutics, then, is the study of how to interpret language. By saying that deconstructionism is the postmodernist hermeneutic, I mean to imply that deconstructionism is how the postmodernist approaches interpreting language. 
Now, deconstructionism is fairly complicated, but the basic idea of deconstructionism is that the meaning of a text no longer resides in the author and what he meant to say in the text. Rather, the meaning of the text resides in the interpreter's heart and mind as he or she reads the text. It will follow, then, that there is no meaning to the book of Romans. There is no author's meaning to the United States Constitution. And there is no author's meaning to any particular historical document. Rather, there will be a Lutheran book of Romans, a Catholic book of Romans, a Marxist book of Romans, a lesbian book of Romans. There will be as many books of Romans as there are interpreters who seek to deconstruct its meaning. Remember, on the classic view, the meaning of a text resides in the text itself, and the meaning of the text is identical to what the author intended when he or she wrote the text. But according to postmodernism, the meaning of a text is not in the text, but rather is in the mind and the heart of the one reading the text. If there are different readers of a text, there will quite literally be different meanings, and therefore different texts. In fact, a book does not become a text until it's read, and then is when it has meaning in the mind of the person reading it. In summary then, postmodernism is capable of both a historical definition It is a movement designed to come after and replace modernity. It therefore begins in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Defined philosophically, it is a form of linguistic cultural relativism according to which all truth, all reality, and all value is relative to your linguistic community. And that would be the group that shares a common language and a common culture and a common social structure. Deconstructionism is the postmodernist hermeneutic, and it is roughly the idea that there is no author's meaning in a text, but the meaning of the text resides in the community of interpreters who read the text for themselves. In my attempt to define postmodernism, I had an occasion to refer to modernity. And I mentioned to you that modernity, or modernism as it is sometimes called, refers to the European Enlightenment from the 17th to the 19th centuries. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to give you more details about what postmodernism is as a worldview. And I will do this by contrasting and comparing it with modernist thought. Now, there has been a lot of debate about whether modernism was a good thing or a bad thing today. And I don't care to enter into that debate at this present moment. Suffice it to say that a number of things that modernist thinkers taught were quite correct, it seems to me. And in a short order, I'm going to list a number of those things. And I want you to know that the features of modernism I'm about to list go all the way back to Aristotle and Plato in the centuries before Christ and, in my view, find roots in the Old and the New Testaments. I will therefore be selecting features of modernity that are fairly commonsensical, and my reason for selecting these teachings of modernity is because every single one of them is denied by postmodernism. Therefore, by getting a hold of these ideas, we will be in a better position to understand postmodernism. What then are some of the teachings of the modernists that postmodernists reject? Well, number one, modernists believed that there was a theory or language independent real world that was out there. The best way to think of this is as follows Suppose that this right here is the real world, and here are our theories, our language, our thought about the world. The idea was that the real world is real and it's already out there and it is what it is, independent of our attempt to think about it, speak about it, or theorize about it. 
Indeed, the goal of a theory or the goal of our language is to accurately capture the real world the way it really is. On this view, then, reality is already there prior to when we start speaking about it. In fact, you may define reality as what we bump up against when our beliefs are false. <laughs> In any case, that re- is, is the modernist view and the common sense view. But according to the postmodernist, reality is a social construction. Let me explain what I mean by a social construction. Take the idea of gender. According to a traditional view of gender, there is a real fundamental difference between being male and female. But according to the postmodernist, there is no absolute difference between being male and female. Indeed, these are not the only two genders. There, there can be other sexual orientations that are every bit as legitimate as the orientation of being male and female. There can be bisexuality, uh, homosexuality of different forms, and so on. The idea then is that there is no fundamental difference between being masculine and being feminine. And indeed, what it means to be masculine is a creation of the language we use to describe the word masculinity. It follows then that masculinity is what it is in terms of the words that we associate with masculinity. Different cultures that use different words to describe masculinity have different concepts of masculinity itself. According to the postmodernists then, there is no such thing as masculinity that is real and that is already out there independent of and prior to our attempts to describe it. No, masculinity, according to the postmodernist, is simply a construction of the language that we use in association with the word. Now, you might think, well, surely, according to, a post, according to postmodernists, surely there are trees. After all, we all know what a tree is. But the postmodernist will say there are no such things as trees. Which tree did you have in mind? Do you have the Buddhist tree, which is not really a part of reality, but is a part of the illusory world? Do you mean the animistic tree, that is primarily the home for spirits? Do you mean the Darwinian tree that evolved in the struggle for survival? Do you mean the Aristotelian tree that has its own soul that makes it living? Which tree did you have in mind? There are, according to the postmodernist, as many trees as there are communities that use tree language. Therefore, the very idea that there is such a thing as a tree is itself a social construction of reality. The modernist view that there is a real world that is out there is called metaphysical realism. The postmodern view that there is no real world that's really out there, that all reality is merely a construction of language, is called metaphysical anti-realism or metaphysical constructivism. And these two have very different views, the modernist and the postmodernist, about the fundamental nature of reality. In addition to reality, the modernist and the postmodernist have very different views about the nature of truth. According to the modernist, truth is a correspondence with reality. Now, if I were to ask you, how would you define truth? What would your answer be? Well, you may say, well, Jesus is the truth. And, in a, and of course, Jesus taught that, and he is. But the question is, what do we mean when we say that Jesus is the truth? We have to have some notion of truth in mind before we know what that assertion even implies. So what exactly is truth? If a student came up to me and said, Dr. Moreland, would you define truth? 
Here's what I would say. Truth is when things are the way one takes them to be. Or to put it differently, truth is when things are the way one thinks them to be or believes them to be. Truth is a relation of correspondence between a thought or a belief or a statement and its object in the real world such that the object is the way the thought represents it as being. Now that's a mouthful, and let me clarify that if I can. In the studio in which I'm speaking, there are three kinds of objects around. There are, first of all, individual things. There is in front of me a bottle, there is this podium, and I, am, as a person, am an individual thing. In addition to individual things, there are also attributes or properties. The bottle has the property of being six inches long. My watch here has the property of being three inches long and weighing about a half of a pound. This podium on which my watch is resting has the property of being four feet tall and weighing 30 pounds. So we learn that things have properties or attributes, and attributes belong to things. God, in this language, is a thing, and He has the attributes of being omnipotent, being omniscient, and so on. In addition to things and properties, there are finally what philosophers call relations. Let's return to the watch again, and let's compare it to the podium. This is a thing, this watch. It has the attribute of being three inches long, and the podium is a thing that has the attribute of being four feet tall. But the podium is taller than the watch. Now note that taller than is not an attribute of the podium, and it's not an attribute of the watch. Instead, taller than is a relationship between the two objects. Taller than is a relation that holds the podium's height and the watch's height together and makes them comparative relative to one another. Various relations would be larger than, later than, on top of, father of, and so on. The note C stands in the higher than relation to B-flat. And so we notice that there are things in the world, they have attributes, and they stand in relations to other things. Now what exactly is truth? Truth is not a thing, and truth is not an attribute. Truth is a relation between two realities. Now what are the realities that truth relates. On the one hand, you have a thought or a belief or a proposition or a sentence. And on the other hand, you have the real world. And truth is a relation of matching between a thought and a belief and reality. Suppose, for example, that I had the thought on my mind that grass is green. And suppose that grass actually is green. My thought that grass is green is true. Why? Because it matches reality. Because things really are the way my thought takes them to be. We have here the thought that grass is green. We have reality where grass is green. And we have truth which is the matching between the two. Note carefully that my thought that grass is green would be true, even if no one could prove it one way or another. Something can be true even if you can't know that it's true. Let me illustrate this. Suppose that everybody in the world were born blind, so that no one could see color or in fact see anything. Suppose that one young man, Joe, is walking across the street one day 
and God causes a thought to occur in his mind for a moment, and the thought that comes to his mind is strange to him, but it's the thought that grass is green. Joe has this thought. He's not sure he even understands what it means, but it's a thought that God has produced in his mind nevertheless. But neither Joe nor anyone in the world can decide whether the thought is true or false because they can't see grass. On the assumption that in that world, grass is still actually green, even though no one can see it. Joe's thought would be true, even though no one could prove it's true. Why? Because it matches with reality. The thought that grass is green is the way things turn out to be in the real world. So what is truth? Truth is when things are the way one takes them to be. Now, how do I know that this definition of truth is correct? Because notice that I am saying that on the one hand you have a thought or a belief, on the other hand you have reality, and that truth is the matching relation between the two. How do I know that this view of truth is actually true? Well, let me tell you a simple case that I believe will illustrate the point. Suppose that I'm at the university one morning and I'm teaching, and I get a call from the university bookstore. And the university bookstore says to Dr. Moreland, you ordered Richard Swinburne's book, The Existence of God. It came in this morning. It's in the bookstore. You can come and pick it up. All of a sudden, I have a brand new thought in my mind that Richard Swinburne's book, The Existence of God, is in the university bookstore, waiting for me. Suppose then that I start walking across campus on the way to the bookstore to see if my brand new thought that the book is there is actually true. On the way to the bookstore, I run across my good friend Josh Lingle, and he and I are walking together across campus. Josh has no idea where I'm going. Uh, he doesn't know if I'm going to the bookstore or to a place to get lunch. He simply wants to talk about things that are on his mind. So the two of us are walking across campus. We're talking and chatting. We walk in the university bookstore, and at the very same instance, our eyes both fall upon Richard Swinburne's book, The Existence of God. At that very moment, Josh Lingle and I have an experience in common with one another. What is that experience? Answer, we both see the book sitting there on the shelf. What is the object of our attention? What is the object of the experience? Answer, the book itself. We both see the book. However, I have a second experience that Josh Lingle doesn't have because I don't simply see the book. I also come to experience that my thought about the book was true. Now, why do I have that experience and Josh doesn't? Because I had the thought in my mind that Richard Swinburne's book, The Existence of God, was in the bookstore, and Josh did not have that thought in his mind. Could he have experienced the truth like I did? Well, the answer is, of course he could. What would he have to have done? The answer is simple. He simply would have had to form the thought, Richard Swinburne's book, The Existence of God, is in the bookstore, and he would have experienced the truth as well. Now, what happens to me when I experience the truth of my thought? What is the object of that experience? Note carefully, the first thing I do is I see the book. I remind myself of what my thought about the book was. I compare my thought about the book with the book. And you know what I notice? There is this matching relationship between the two, and I use the word truth for that matching relation. 
Later on, I go home, and my wife says to me, JP, you're angry? And I say, no, I'm not angry. And she says, yes, you are. And so I decide to see if whether her statement is true or false. So I take the thought that I'm angry, and this time I don't walk to the bookstore, but I go in and search into my own heart and my life. And you know what I find in there? This seething feeling of bitterness and anger. I have my thought that I'm angry. I'm aware of the anger in my mind, and I compare the two, and you know what I notice? There is a match between them. What's going on inside of me corresponds to the statement that I'm angry. The statement is true because things are the way the thought takes them to be. Truth is a correspondence or a match between reality and a thought or a belief. When Jesus says, I'm the truth, he means that I am the one that matches who the Messiah was really going to be. I am not an imposter. I am the real Messiah, and I am the source of truth itself. Now, the postmodernist denies the reality of truth as a matching with reality, and according to postmodernism, truth is social agreement. Truth is whatever your, your group agrees to accept. Therefore, if your group agrees to accept the existence of God, that is true for you. If another group agrees not to accept the existence of God, that is true for them. So that truth turns out to be social agreement. Now, so far we've seen that the modernist believes that there is a real world out there, and that truth is when a thought or a belief matches with reality. And the postmodernist rejects both of these notions. For the postmodernist, there is no real world. All reality is an invention or a creation of our language. And truth turns out to be what we all agree to accept. Notice that on the postmodern definition of truth, reality is not relevant. Truth is not a matching with reality, but it is what we have chosen in our culture to agree upon. Again, truth for the postmodernist turns out to be social convention or social agreement. Number three, according to the modernist, we sometimes use language to refer to reality. Consider the sentence, the cat is on the mat. Let us ask ourselves how the term cat functions in that sentence. It's obvious that the term cat functions to refer to a particular mammal that is sitting in the house on top of a specific object called a mat. The term cat refers to a cat, and the term mat refers to a mat that exists in the real world. Thus, we have an example of two words, the term cat and the term mat, serving a referential function in the sentence, meaning that they simply function to refer to things in reality. Notice that when we use language to refer to reality, our use of these words allows us to hook on to the real world and latch on to it. When I say the cat is on the mat, I'm able to lay hold of that cat in my thought and speech and to say something about it. On this view, when I say that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, when I use the term God, that allows me to latch on to God and to actually speak about Him and to direct my thoughts onto something that that real being actually did in the world, namely sent His Son Christ, Jesus, to reconcile the world unto Himself. Thus, the term God is a referring term. It allows me to latch on to the reality of God, to speak about Him truthfully, 
and to actually make contact with the real object who is God himself, both in my thought and in my speech. The referential use of language, therefore, is very, very important, for it enables us, in thought and speech, to latch on to the way the world really is out there, independently of our speaking about it. The postmodernist denies the referential use of language. You might ask the question, well then, how is the word cat functioning in the sentence, the cat is on the mat, for the postmodernist? Suppose we have the word cat right here, and and here's the sentence, the cat is on the mat, with the word cat, and here is a cat sitting on a mat in the real world. For the modernist, there is a referring to the cat and laying hold of it in the speech, but not so for the postmodernist. For the postmodernist, the word cat stands for other words. And so the word cat would stand for a furry mammal. And the word mammal would refer to a warm-blooded non-reptile. The word furry would refer to other words. So that every word actually expresses other words that it is synonymous with. It turns out then that we live inside our language where language can be likened to a fishnet. The fishnet has nodes where the ropes come together and then it has strands of rope connecting nodes to other nodes. The nodes represent words and the fish rope represents a connection between a word and other words it is synonymous with. On this view then, we are all trapped inside the fishnet. We are locked inside our words. We are trapped inside our language and we cannot break out of our language to the real world to decide what reality is like if there is such a thing as reality. By denying the referential use of language then, the postmodernist says that even if there is a reality out there, it doesn't matter because we have absolutely no way of laying hold of it. In addition to the postmodernist view of reality, truth, and language, there is also a difference of opinion about the nature of knowledge. For the modernist, knowledge is true belief based on adequate reasons. Let me illustrate this. Suppose that we have a scientist who knows that E equals mc squared, but we have an ordinary person who's heard that E equals mc squared, but has absolutely no idea whether or not it's true. What does it mean for our scientist friend to know that E equals mc squared? Well, number one, he has to believe that E equals mc squared. It would make no sense for our scientist friend to say, I know that E equals mc squared, but to tell you the truth, I don't believe it. Secondly, the belief must be true. If the scientist actually knows that E equals mc squared, he must have a true belief about the matter. But true belief is not enough for knowledge. Why? Because sometimes we have a true belief and we're lucky. We made a lucky guess. We believe something that's true, but we don't have any good reasons for it. Knowledge is a true belief that's based on good, solid, adequate reasons. Those reasons can be spiritual experience, they can be evidence of various kinds, and so on. But knowledge is true belief that's based on adequate, good reasons. Note carefully that you can know something without being certain that you're right. I mentioned this in an earlier session. Knowledge does not require certainty. 
It simply requires that you have a true belief that's based on adequate reasons. One can actually know something, and through the recovery of further evidence, one can come to know it with greater and greater certainty as time goes on. This has actually happened in my own relationship with God. Shortly after my conversion, I knew the Lord, but I know Him much more firmly and much more strongly now than I knew Him then. I have a greater degree of certainty now than I had upon my first conversion years and years ago. Now, the modernist then defines knowledge as a true belief based on good, adequate reasons. The postmodernist defines knowledge as social agreement among the experts in your community. Thus, knowledge about psychology would involve social agreement among psychologists. Knowledge about the economy would, in, would involve social agreement among e- e- economists and businessmen and women. Knowledge in religion would be social agreement among religious experts. It turns out then that for the postmodernist, knowledge is relative to experts and what they believe. We define knowledge in terms of experts, but the modernist wants to define an expert in terms of knowledge. For the modernist, an expert is someone who has knowledge. For the postmodernist, knowledge is something the expert agrees about. We see by the postmodernist definition of knowledge that knowledge is itself a social construction of agreement. It is very, very important to see then how the relativism is emerging in my caricaturization of postmodernism. The postmodernist does not believe in a real world, but instead believes that reality is a social construction. The postmodernist does not believe that truth has anything to do with matching reality, but instead believes that truth is social agreement. The postmodernist does not believe that language can refer to reality, but instead says language merely expresses other pieces of language. And finally, the postmodernist does not believe that knowledge is a true belief about reality, that's based on good reasons, but instead says that knowledge is social agreement among experts. Now we turn, fifthly, to this whole notion of reason. And we ask ourselves the question, is reason objective? Years ago, I led a young woman to Jesus Christ, and I began to disciple her, and she Uh, at the college she was attending, was taking a class when the topic of abortion came up in the classroom. She began to express her, her view that abortion was wrong, and the professor interrupted her and said, excuse me, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. Well, he said, your views on this then are disqualified, because you are no longer objective about the topic. This professor assumed that objectivity was a good thing and that this young lady was disqualified because she wasn't objective. So now we raise the question, is are people objective about the things they believe? And the answer turns out to depend upon which of two very different notions of objectivity you're talking about. There is, first of all, psychological objectivity, and there is, secondly, rational objectivity. Let's talk about these in order. What is psychological objectivity? Psychological objectivity is the absence of bias or commitment either way on an issue. If you're psychologically objective, You are literally 50-50 about a topic. Are people ever 
psychologically objective? It turns out the answer is yes. People are psychologically objective in areas they don't know anything about or don't care about. To give you an illustration, as an American, I am not interested in uh, rugby in England or in Great Britain. If you were to ask me, do I think one rugby team in Great Britain is better than the other rugby team, I would be completely psychologically objective about that question. I don't have a leaning one way or the other because I don't know anything about the question and I don't care about it. Are people usually psychologically objective, meaning 50-50 without a commitment, are people usually psychologically objective about the things of life? The answer is no. People are very seldom psychologically objective about the things they've thought about and pondered. Well, should people be psychologically objective? Well, the answer turns out to be yes if they've never thought about something, but no if they've spent some time thinking about it. After all, what would be the purpose of studying and thinking about something if you were supposed to stay neutral and 50-50 about the topic in question? The whole reason that you study and, and learn about an issue is so that you can form an opinion about it. And forming an opinion is no longer to be 50-50. If I were to go to the medical school of the University of Southern California and lecture, and if I were to ask the medical faculty, are you psychologically objective about the circulation theory of the blood, are you 50-50 about whether the blood circulates or not, I hope the medical faculty at the University of Southern California would say, we are not psychologically objective about this question. We are all committed to the idea that the blood circulates. Note very carefully then, that when it comes to psychological objectivity, which is the idea that a person is literally neutral, 50-50, has no leaning one way or the other on a topic, that people can be psychologically objective in areas they don't know anything about or care about, but it is very, very seldom that people are psychologically objective. And notice as well that psychological objectivity is not a good thing if a person has spent time pondering and thinking about an issue and has formed a view of it in keeping with the evidence and the reasons for and against the issue in question. There's a second kind of objectivity, however, that is far more important than psychological objectivity, and it is called rational objectivity. Rational objectivity is the ability to discern the difference between good and bad reasons for a conclusion. Rational objectivity is the ability to tell the difference between good evidence for a conclusion and bad evidence for a conclusion. Postmodernists are attacking the importance of reason because they claim that no one can be rationally objective because no one is psychologically objective. That is to say, for example, that Christians can't be rational about belief in the resurrection of Jesus because they are committed to this belief so deeply that they can no longer reason about the question in any normal kind of way. Because Christians are psychologically committed to belief in the resurrection, say postmodernists, they have lost their rational objectivity. Since postmodernists no longer believe in the importance of reason, they have put in the place of reason psychological and rhetorical forms of persuasion where you try to manipulate a person to accept your viewpoint while bypassing their rational faculties. This is a serious problem. It's demeaning, and we Christians value the role of reason in the things we believe and why we believe them.
Is it really true then that a loss of psychological objectivity means that I can't be rationally objective? Is it really the case that if I am committed to a certain issue, I can no longer tell the difference between a good and a bad argument for the things that I have believed? No, I don't believe that's the case. And to show you why, let me ask you a question. Have you ever held a belief about anything that you were committed to and later on heard a good argument against what you believed? Have you ever been committed to something and later on heard a bad argument against what you believed? Let me ask it again. Have you ever been committed to something and heard a good argument for what you already believed or heard a bad argument that actually supported what you already believed? Clearly, we have all had these experiences. I believe in the Christian God. I am not psychologically objective about that question. But I have heard since coming to believe in the Christian God, I have heard good arguments for why I should believe in Him, and I've heard bad arguments for why I should believe in Him. I can still tell the difference between a good argument and a bad argument, even though I'm psychologically committed to this belief. It follows, then, that a lack of psychological objectivity does not imply a lack of rational objectivity. Thus, the postmodern rejection of reason ends up in manipulation. For if we can no longer reason to try to persuade people of our viewpoints about various topics, we will end up trying to manipulate them through techniques to come to see the world the way we see them. But this is what is all that's left with postmodernism because of the postmodern assault on reason. So we see that the modernist believes in a real world. The postmodernist believes that reality is a social construction. The modernist believes that truth is a correspondence with reality. The postmodernist believes that truth is social agreement. The modernist believes that we can use language to refer to things in the real world like a cat and a mat in the statement, the cat is on the mat. The postmodernist believes that terms like the cat, like the term cat, that appear to refer to things in reality, really stand for other pieces of language. The modernist believes that knowledge is a true belief that's based on adequate good reasons. The postmodernist believes that knowledge is social agreement among elites and experts. The modernist believes that we are sometimes psychologically objective, but more importantly, even if we're not psychologically objective, we can still be rationally objective, and thus the use of reason and persuasion and argument is absolutely essential in moral and religious discussions. The postmodernist, on the other hand, believes that because we are psychologically biased about the various moral and religious beliefs we hold, we have lost our ability to tell the difference between a good and a bad argument for a conclusion. What I've done so far is I've given you an introduction to postmodernism as a historical and philosophical movement, deconstructionism as the postmodern hermeneutic, and I have given you a more full definition of postmodernism by comparing and contrasting it with modernist views of reality, truth, language, knowledge, and reason. What I want to do in the very brief time that we have left is to offer you a very simple criticism of postmodernism as a worldview. At the end of the day, postmodernism is self-refuting. Postmodernists do not believe that literary texts have a meaning in them, but they get upset if you misinterpret their writings 
because they believe that their writings should express their own author's meaning when they write texts. So while they don't believe in an author's meaning, they do believe that their own texts have meaning. Postmodernists deny that there's truth, but they believe that postmodernism is true. Postmodernists do not believe in the objectivity of reason and knowledge, but they believe that they are giving you an objective, knowledgeable account of modernity and modernism and what Locke and Kant and other thinkers of that era actually believed. Postmodernism is a view that is self-refuting and it should be rejected precisely because it's self-refuting. Finally, postmodernism leads to moral relativism and and religious relativism, but moral and religious relativism are destructive and false. There are some religions and some moral positions that are so hideous and so demeaning to human life that they must be rejected and criticized by any objective person that evaluates them. In my own country, there have been cults and religious movements that have caused people to take life and to do all kinds of immoral and hideous things. In no way should we accept these movements as being true for them, but not true for us. No, moral and religious relativism is a false, destructive approach to ethics and religion, and postmodernism, which implies moral and religious relativism, is the worst for it. What I've tried to do in this session, then, is I've given you an introduction to postmodernism. I've tried to explain what postmodernists believe as a worldview, and I've offered you a very brief critique of postmodernism as a view of the world. Christianity, in my view, is far superior to scientific naturalism and postmodernism as views of the world. And it is very, very important for us Christians to know how to analyze these rival worldviews and to respond to them when the occasion arises.